The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom, now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 64 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, the podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. If I return to podcasting after a 10-year absence following the death of my co-host, you better believe it'd be a grim and gritty affair. I'm Adam. I couldn't picture being grim and gritty at all, Adam. I couldn't (laughs) see that in a million years. But if I was entrusted in a Green Lantern ring from a little blue guy... I'd probably use it to create a giant snow shovel and clear out my entire driveway in one scoop. I'm Michael. And joining us tonight is a man whose love for comics has kept rolling, rolling, rolling since the <laughs> 90s when he did it all for the nookie while Wes Borland was dressing up like a reject from Image Comics on stage. Luckily, we've wrangled him in like a freak on a leech. <laughs> Oh. To talk about the fun of Wizard Magazine from the Life Was Peachy podcast, it's Andrew Sahawk. How's it going? Oh, hey, thanks for having me. Um, I'm really excited to be here. I can't wait to talk about a magazine that talks about comics with you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Adam really weaved in a lot of 90s music references. Yeah, I was there. impressed. There's quite, was a, impressive. quite a big Doing what I can. Well, that's what's interesting. Is so you contacted us a few months yes. back with a desire to talk Wizard. You found out we existed. And then Listening to your podcast by a strange twist of fate, you read my decades-old Amazon mm-hmm. review of the Primus album Antipop on an yes. episode. <laughs> yes. So it just um, seems like we were destined to cross paths. Yeah, so. yeah. So what Adam's referring to is so at the so my podcast Life Was Peachy, we talk about new metal albums, and at the end of every episode, we read Amazon reviews, but they're all five-star reviews. So nobody's trash talking. It's all people who love it. And yeah, we had Primus Antipop on there, and like just sheer coincidence like i just pulled yours and uh yeah small world it's not a coincidence i'm telling you right now the the man is all over the internet with reviews and commentary and you you name it he's out there i'm telling you (laughs) yeah not not so much on amazon these days but michael i have to ask you because you're always like surprising me with these bands that you were into so what new metal bands in the late 90s and early 2000s were you all about I was big into Metallica, but really and truly my favorite band coming out of the 90s was a band called Fuel. Okay. That was, that yeah, was... no Fuel. So Fuel would definitely not be metal. Fuel would be like hard rock. If I were to go deeper into metal, I was I had a, a long stint with, uh, with Deftones and Korn. Oh, yeah. Okay, and, there you go. And, See, um, now you're getting into it. So, Michael, do you know the term new metal, N-U metal? I've seen the term. I've seen it, but I, I couldn't tell you. You know what other band I'm thinking of? All of a sudden, Perfect Circle. So yeah, that was that was a spinoff of Tool. That was yes, Tool. Tool. Yes, a spinoff of Tool. Yeah, yeah, not quite like a new metal band, but like definitely like a lot of new metal bands ripped off Tool. So mm-hmm. very much, we've talked about Tool on, on my podcast quite a bit. So that makes complete sense. So Michael, what you're telling me is you don't have a Slipknot mask in your closet <laughs> at home. I don't have a slip dot mask. No, okay. I would never, never. I would be too scared. Too scared. 
here's the thing. So comics and new metal have crossed paths a few times over the sure. years. Like Todd McFarlane drew a corn album cover and yes. the drummer for System of oh, Down yeah. added original comic book art from top artists to his drum kit. And yeah. then he opened up his own comic book store. That's Which true. is just, yeah. it's kind of crazy. But can you think of any other like new metal star that is like super into comics or ever like dared to let their geek flag fly? Well, I should know uh, another funny thing about Todd and Corn is that Todd one time said that Corn was the doors of the 90s. <laughs> which is the kind of hyperbole that could only come out of the mouth of an image comics founder. Um, I mean, there's so many other bands that are more doors than corn, but I mean, yeah, we, we could go down a rabbit hole, but like yeah. Nirvana, right? Yeah. I mean, there's so many that are more appropriate for that, but as for like other crossovers, I mean, there's some new metal bands that have their own comics. Like static X had a comic that came out through Oh, static X. Yeah, yeah. Love me some Static X. Yeah, Static X is a lot of fun. They're a fun band. Uh, I think that was on Chaos Comics. Oh, uh, sweet. Yeah, Slipknot, I think, also had a comic through Chaos. <laughs> I mean, um, I know ICP had comics ICP, and stuff, but, but they're not new metal. So No, but, but they're like weird. And, like uh, on my show, the definition for new metal is pretty liberal. So okay. like... We definitely have done an episode about ICP, uh, Insane Clown Posse. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of you know, and I think also you'll you'll find that maybe the influence of that that style of music is pretty apparent in a lot of comics that came out of the '90s. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's you know, a lot sure. of a lot of the guys that they find the dudes in comics. Like, if you look at the Top Cow comics, there's plenty of characters that look like the guys from Corn and stuff like that. So, so um, Andrew, I gotta ask yeah. you. This is a, a question I've been asking a lot of real audio music heads lately sure. are you a traditionalist will you still listen to it on a cd Do okay you care if it's digital or are you on the vinyl trend now okay Great question. So I will say I do love vinyl. I think it's really cool. I'm a designer, a graphic designer. I love the visual presentation. So I love the big format artwork to be able to look at it on vinyl. That having been said, most of the time I listen to music, it's digital. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's purely out of convenience. It's not right. because I think it's better. Oddly enough, there's people who are like, yeah, the CD's coming back. And I'm like, I mean, I guess kind of, you know, there is a, there's a certain degree to portability that comes with the CD that you just, you know, if you've got a certain 15 years of, of car uh, manufacturer, you have a CD player, you don't oh, have yeah. a in it. And you, and you know, so it's like a CD is actually easier to use than streaming it from Spotify. I have a hybrid in yeah. my hybrid vehicle because we have a CD player and we yeah. have the auxiliary port. So we have yeah. a little bit of both. But Andrew, yeah. we're here, we're talking about music, but we got to talk about comics. So we want you yeah. to sing your song and tell okay. us all about your origin story. Okay. So I think one of my earliest memories of anything really is reading, and I couldn't tell you the issue number, but it was an issue of X-Men Classic. Um, and I was reading it, like my parents bought it for me because we were gonna, going on a flight to Florida. They wanted to keep me occupied. And all I remember from it is it was a story in which Colossus 
had to go underwater because he doesn't have to breathe underwater. And I remember just thinking, oh, that's such an interesting element, like, to this character. Like, it's such a weird thing to put in there because it has nothing to do with any of his superpowers. (laughs) Um, But it's just that's just comics logic for you. It's just like, yeah, well, we got to have this character do something underwater. What if he doesn't need to breathe? I mean, I was probably like six or seven when I got that. Pretty formative for me. I followed primarily the X-Men for a long time. Like the Jim Lee stuff, the Wills Portacio stuff, everything after like the Muir Island saga, like when that kind of splintered out and they relaunched X-Factor. So those were really big books for me. And then I followed Jim Lee on to, to Wildstorm at Image. I've read a lot of the Image books, primarily Wildstorm, a couple of the Extreme books, and then some of the Top Cow books. Um, right as soon as Top Cow started really veering into like the bad girl stuff and the sorcery and mystical and magic stuff, I was like, yeah. oh, I'm not interested in this. But like Weapon Zero, I still think Weapon Zero is such an underrated, cool sci-fi book. So I love that. But then like, as I got a little bit older, you know, like the, towards the end of the 90s, you know, I'm in my late teens and the internet is sort of becoming becoming more prevalent so i started finding things like grendel and some of the indie stuff and like you know dark horse had some really interesting stuff coming out so that's kind of like where i really started the world started to open up for me and i really found a lot of different things that couldn't be more different from jim lee's (laughs) x-men and i still loved all of it side by side so like to this day like I don't really love the stuff Jim Lee's putting out now, but if you slap, you know, X-Men number one in my hands, I'm like, this looks amazing still. That's Um, awesome. Now, what about, I'm just curious, because obviously Wizard Magazine struck a chord when you saw that that's what we're talking about. And you have a history in the comedy business. Yeah. You love the humor. You love to get on stage with a mic in your hand. So what can you tell us about your connection to Wizard Magazine? Was it the comedy? Was it the comics education? Was it the price guide? Why were you? Yeah. So I can tell you you the first the first issue of wizard that i picked up it's the bart sears spawn and violator cover mm-hmm. and i can tell you where i picked it up was at kennedy mall in dubuque iowa i can tell you <laughs> that's where i got it you know it's kind of interesting looking back at like the scans of those like they were still kind of figuring it out on the fly which is always interesting to me in retrospect like seeing something where it's like i know where this magazine's gonna go but like at the time like they were just like we're getting through this day by day man like we we are just flying by the seat of our pants as far as the humor goes like I do feel like I think that was the part of the initial hook for a lot of people like my age who were a little bit younger. In retrospect, I think some of the jokes kind of fall flat. Like now that I've been doing comedy for so long, I'm like, oh, these aren't that funny. But for like a 13 year old, I'm like, this is hilarious. You know, <laughs> it's a lot, um, lot of bathroom humor. Yeah, yeah, it's relatively tame. Like some of it's kind of lame. I do feel like everyone's like they got some really. You great- may have missed a few that we've seen. They were yeah, like, but my balls yeah. keeping track of the. <laughs> yeah. They, yeah. Don't, they don't age well, some of these jokes. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of stuff that, like, PC-wise, we would, in 2022, we'd be like, oh, man, this is this doesn't fly. But, like, I mean, that's true of everything. But for me, where I grew up, when I first discovered Wizard, I was living in Platteville, Wisconsin, which is a pretty small town. There's no comic book store for about 40 miles. And so, like, my exposure to comics was pretty limited. The internet's not a big thing yet. So, like... The only way I'm finding out about stuff that I can't find at the local grocery store is in this magazine. So it's really kind of opening the doors of what comics can be. So that was a big appeal to me. I also just really liked that when they would do like in-depth interviews. I think that was a big, big part of it for yeah, me. Yeah, I think, Michael, we were definitely spoiled because you're on the East Coast. I'm on the West Coast. And we have a lot of these guests that come in from the Midwest. And they're like, there was nothing. Like, yeah. I'm in a little town. And Wizard was yeah. my pipeline to the world of comics. So that's And here's the thing, Michael. Uh, I, I feel like with Andrew, 
through here. He found us, but I, he kind of found me too through the review. But what if back in the day I had just written him a letter and maybe we would have heard something that way? And I'm the king of the transitions, so it's time to open up <laughs> Willie Lumpkin's mailbag. <laughs> So uh, our letter here uh, to start things out is from Joe Miller of Brooklyn Park, Minnesota. Okay, I know where that is. I, I, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I go he- there. You know what? Little tidbit about Brooklyn Park. Anybody who lives in, in the Wisconsin will know this. There's only one Rocky Rococo pizza place in all of Minnesota, and it's in Brooklyn Park. And I make the trip about once a month because it's that great. It sounds like the place where there would be a Lincoln Park cover band. We're like, we're Brooklyn Park. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But maybe if you run into Joe Miller, you can ask him about this letter because he says, Dear Jimmy B. Boy, what do you do with all the letter art that doesn't cut the mustard and is not printed? And yeah, there's a lot of letter art. In fact, we just got two autographed copies of Wizard Magazine from someone who won the letter art contest three issues in a row. And he offered them up to us. He's like, they would be better served in your archives and i was like you're awesome (laughs) what that's saying is his wife said get rid of these things (laughs) send it to this nerd in montana that'll keep it in his house his wife will let him have it that's what they're saying and and just point of order the jimmy he's referred jimmy boy that's jim mclaughlin right correct yes okay okay. is running our letters column here that's what i thought and here is mr mclaughlin's response Sub gets forwarded to interested parties. I forward all leftover milk and cheese letter art to Evan Dorkin, who gets quite a kick out of it. Envelopes with chaos characters get forwarded to chaos comics and occasionally appear in letters columns there. A lot winds up hanging on the walls at our offices, including the one and only Ralph Snort envelope I've seen, which I have hanging above my desk. The rest, like the rest of the unused envelopes, get recycled. Uh, Do you guys have any concept of Ralph Snart? Ralph Snart. No. Uh, have, have you ever heard of Now Comics, even? That imprint. Yeah, that name yeah. sounds really familiar. It does. I, I think so, too. Yeah, so Ralph Snart was like this guy. It was it was kind of like a weird... They did like 3D backgrounds, but then like a 2D drawn guy. And he was just kind of a guy that would travel dimensions around things. I have like one issue I've read through in the past where I was kind of like... Okay. Oh. But a lot of wizard guys that have been on the wizard files said they liked Ralph Snart, which just cracks me up. But... Speaking of envelope contests, there's also in this issue an ad for Atomic Comics, okay? They were based in Arizona. I used to live out there, shop at Atomic Comics. But they also offered an envelope art contest where you could win a limited edition pit statue valued at $300 if they liked your envelope art. Oh, the Randy Bowen, the Bowen design. Yeah, Yeah, okay. So it's all the rage here. I I love Randy Bowen statues. I'm I'm still trying to search some out that are, if I could have raided the (laughs) wizard warehouse in that time period, I would have cleaned house. Oh, please. But I'll go into our next letter here from a Caleb Porter. And Caleb Porter says, Dear Wizard, is it just me or does Todd McFarlane bear an uncanny resemblance to geeky, super lame comedian Bob Saget from America's Funniest Home Videos? Caleb Porter, Yucapia, California. Yukaipa. Yukaipa. Well, this, you should have ta- you're from California. You should have taken this one. How would I know? So the response from Wizard says, Yeah. 
There's a bit of a resemblance there. You ever notice that America's Funniest Home Videos is very highly rated, even though it's nothing more than a half an hour of cup shots? <laughs> Maybe that's what Spawn needs. More cup shots. <laughs> but it's funny, like, what I find hilarious about this is, you know, obviously Bob Saget passed away uh, in the last year. But, like, he was so noted in the 90s as a super lame comedian. Yeah. But if you ever heard his real stand-up yeah. filthy probably filthy. the most vulgar i've ever yeah. heard him and gilbert godfried and I've, <laughs> I've met and seen gilbert godfrey live in this in new york city right before like maybe like a year or two before he passed away and even in like his decrepit older age he was still the most vulgar i'm sitting there I'm like <laughs> wow how does this guy do this he's so good yeah. But yeah, it's just so funny that they would so they everyone equated him as the full house America's Funniest Home Video dad, but Bob Saget was just so much more than that. And I guess in a way, I can kind of see a slight resemblance, like a distant cousin, if you will. Yeah, yeah I don't quite. see it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't see it. But you know, this speaks to like I was saying, like the world is so much bigger. Like there's so little we knew about each other and everything. Like my show, we come this comes up too. Like the nineties was such an interesting time because like we just didn't know each other, but we could finally start building connections with people halfway across the country that other people could be privy to. So like that year, that's the reason why people didn't know that that Bob Saget was such a filthy comedian is because yeah. like you couldn't go on YouTube and watch his set from from the comedy the show. Laugh Factory or yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you couldn't exactly. do that. So you had no idea. You just you just assumed he was Danny Tanner from Full House. Yeah. And yet he was the comedian's comedian. People just yeah. loved him. I mean, friends with Jim Carrey, like all those types of things. Yeah. But Andrew, why don't you take us into our last letter here? Sure. Okay, so this is from Jessica Ward in Kenner, Louisiana, where they make all the action figures, I'm assuming. Um <laughs> Uh, she wrote, Dear Wizard, what kind of shampoo does Lady Death use? I want to know because she has that bounce. Like, this is such a weird letter to me because it's just like, I almost go, did Jim McLaughlin write, like, write this letter? Because like, no human being really wants to know what, like, this is such a weird thing. Well, yeah. and when, when we get a little bit later in the show, you're going to find out that people were writing all sorts of weird letters sure. about certain details of the lives of female comic characters. That's so, fair. That's let's fair. find out what Wizard says Yeah, here. she also said, also, I have a problem. I'm a girl and I read comics. I read Wizard, of course, but most of my family says it's not very ladylike. What should I do? And... Jimmy Miboy says, Lady Death just has that bounce. Boy, does that sound like a punchline in search of a joke? Anywho, I don't, I didn't know. So I called Francisco Polito at Chaos Comics and she said, Lady Death is an all natural woman and doesn't use anything in her hair. Ha, like an all natural woman. Sounds like another punchline in search of a joke. Since I had her on the phone and since she's a female of the species, I also asked Francisca what you could do about your problem. She recommended you do what she does. Every month when the new issue of Wizard comes out, all the ladies here at work come over to my house for tea and we all discuss the new issue. And that's very ladylike. I gotta say this, you know why she's got great hair? Is because Stephen Hughes knew how to draw hair. That's why. Yeah, I don't know. That's a weird question. I feel like it is a really a, weird question. A, a girl would not ask that question. It just seems right. That's what I'm saying. Like you could tell they were like, "Hey, how do we gin up the the female readership numbers?" Yeah. Look, know. we're getting girls writing in letters here. See, yeah. guys, yeah. girls read well, this magazine too. If there was a rush of women suddenly reading comics and we were aware of it, it would certainly make headlines. So, Michael, why don't you take us into? <laughs> <laughs> guy. <laughs> 
Gotta get us back on track, because I'll run this shit off the rails. Here we go. All right. <laughs> Our top story tonight, Marvel returns to the Age of Apocalypse, reveals that a 48-page one-shot written by Scott Lobdell with art by Joe Bennett will be published in answer to a fan demand for more of the alternate X-Men reality. The story is not a sequel, but rather a prequel to the Marvel Comics event that featured redesigns of your classic characters by hot artist Joe Matarera. Did you guys read any of the follow-up Age of Apocalypse comics? When you say the follow-up, like there was some that came out like the early 2000s? Is that what you mean? Yeah, well, so there was this, and then they spun Blink off as a part of Exiles, so that was kind of an extension of Age of Apocalypse. Oh, yeah. And then, yeah, then more recently, they keep, like, they just bring it back, like, you know, they just go, Age of Apocalypse, remember you loved it, it was a big deal, but did you love it? I didn't read any of that ones in the 90s myself. Okay, I vaguely remember this now, I'm looking at the cover art of it, it's Tales from the Age of Apocalypse. Yeah, Uh, okay, I do remember this, I did not read this book. I did read a bunch of the original ones when they first came out. Like, because I remember it was such a bold move. You know, Generation X had just launched. They'd done four issues. Because I remember in reading in Wizard, like, how bold is it that Marvel is canceling Generation X after four issues? This is crazy. Well, they weren't canceling. They were replacing it with Age of Apocalypse. But we didn't know that. Right. You know, so I, I read that. Um, and oddly enough, I just, I've just been kind of touring the local dollar bin stores around here. And I've got most of the saga queued up. And I'm about to dive in. And oh, I'll- okay. Yeah, most of it. So I'm pretty excited because I haven't touched it since I was 14 or whenever this came out. Yeah, 14. Yeah. Marvel Comics is releasing a revised Marvel tryout book to help in discovering new talent that will work on their books. The original Marvel tryout book was released in the 80s and the winner, none other than Mark Bagley. That's that's pretty cool. I didn't know that. Who went on to have an amazing career drawing Spider-Man in many iterations. So... Did you guys ever consider trying to become a comic book professional? I'm sure Adam did. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, my mom bought me an art table because she was an artist. She's like, yes, whatever you want to do with art. So I had an art table, I had all my tools and with my friends, like we came up with our own comic book company. We had our characters, we would get together once a week and draw together. I distributed my own comics in junior high and everybody just got a kick out of it some of them were like well he's pretty good at this and they're like what if we fed you some ideas like we'll be the characters so i want to be the ice cream man he's going to be burrito boy and we want to have a sidekick who's a pig so i literally made ice cream man and burrito boy with pig and i I drew a few issues of that like it was i was taking commissions you know (laughs) but that's a very like 90s that's easily like a comic book that could have come out of like early oni comics mm-hmm. or yes. like that's like a milk and cheese type as silly as it sounds like there you could totally like if you found the right angle on that like write like some weird 90s like alternative comic about that like it totally makes sense i never really uh had any interest in drawing comics because i knew i like designing costumes but i knew i couldn't actually draw like storytelling and posing but i was super obsessed with the idea of creating my own characters and i had like a whole pantheon of characters, not necessarily modeled after the Wildstorm universe, but like one of the things that I love about Wildstorm was like, you had weird like military horror stuff and you had crazy sci-fi and you had like teen 
sex comedy superheroes and stuff. It's like, I had a whole universe that I created that was like touching every angle of like what you could do with superhero characters. So I always thought about writing stories, but I never was interested in drawing stories. Oh, drawing okay. Comics. Yeah, I, I wanted to write. I can't draw to save my life. So yeah. And, and I wrote a bunch of comics. Like I have really good drafts, but then I would look into their, like, how do you submit? Oh, you need to have a previous history of producing. I'm like, if I haven't produced anything, how can I get it? Yeah, <laughs> as I'm getting older, I realize the reason for that is it's what do you call it? Intellectual property theft protection. Because yeah. you're just like, I got this great Spider-Man story. Why don't you just let me tell him? It's like, because if you tell me the story and then I hand it off to Howard Mackey and Howard Mackey does that, or if I'm just having drinks with Howard Mackey and I mentioned, like, what if Spider-Man did this and I forget that you told me that in 15 years, you can sue me for it. So that's the whole reason for it. Yeah, it's a bummer. So next up, we have Mars Attacks. The Image Universe is a four-issue crossover event where Image characters from all the studios, including Spawn, Gen 13, and even the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, who were being published through Eric Larson's imprint, will battle invading Martians all across the world. This event is coinciding with the Tim Burton film, hitting theaters around the same time. Mars Attacks, The Savage Dragon, is a spin-off adventure where the dragon attacks Mars. It's like, didn't Hulk do that for like Planet <laughs> Hulk a couple of years later? Yeah. <laughs> anyway. This is a really um, interesting story because like, do you know who the creative team on that book was? Yeah, we had like no. Keith Giffen was in there, Bill yeah, Sienkiewicz for some yeah, reason. Sienkiewicz yeah, inked it too. Like it was such a, and Andy Smith drew it. Like it was just like a weird, I mean, not like in a bad way, but like just like in a million years, I never would have put those three people together on this book. That's yeah, and it's kind of just, a, it's a random story. I mean, it's not bad, but definitely the gimmick is we're going to cram as many image characters as we can onto every page. And we're going to like, even a panel, they'll be like, here's a panel of all the Wildstorm characters fighting. Right. Here's a panel of all the Eric Larson characters fighting and so on and so forth. Like they just, they wanted to show everybody together sh in a shared universe. Plus their big thing was, and we're actually going to kill people off and they right. will stay dead. And this yeah, like, yeah. like one or two characters died, but they were minor. So who <laughs> yeah, of course they were. So Chaos Comics is celebrating Evil Ernie's five years in existence by running a contest where readers can win an Omega Edition comic book limited to exactly one copy that costs a thousand dollars to produce. <laughs> I wonder what how much that Evil Ernie comic or Omega <laughs> yeah. Edition is worth today. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it's out there. There are no details on why the issue is so costly or why it is so special. So only the winner will know for sure. Also being released is a cold cast resin statue, as well as Evil Ernie's baddest battles that never happened, featuring what-if style showdowns drawn by Jim Ballant and Stephen Hughes and others. I can't believe Evil Ernie has been around that long. We've been talking about it that long. Like, I mean, in in Wizard World in our timeline, yeah. it's like how could this character be around so long? Yeah, Evil Ernie was a weird thing because it was kind of like uh, Eddie from uh, Iron Maiden. Like, exactly, total ripoff. Yeah. yeah, total total derivative. And then like like he was supposed to be the marquee character, and then like Lady Death came out. Like he, Lady Death was just like a character in that book, and then you're like, oh wait a minute, this is this is the juice, like. <laughs> Elarney's fine, whatever, but it's like this, you know, this woman who's got like just the tiniest bikini and the biggest sword, like, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and really good hair. 
apparently. That's yeah. going to sell books, kids. You got to get in there, man. Yeah. Oh, boy. Finally, Deadpool is getting his own ongoing title in November of 1996. After enjoying years of growing popularity, the series will be written by newcomer Joe Kelly and art by Ed McGinnis. Did either of you ever read much Deadpool? I will admit... I have never bought a Deadpool book because it never interests me, period. The only Deadpool book I ever bought was because I just randomly found it on eBay. It was a Deadpool that was written by Buddy Scalera right after he left Wizard and he got to work at Marvel Comics and he wrote an issue of Deadpool. And the issue I found, Buddy himself had autographed and given to his friend who helped him get the job. And that wow. guy had put it up for sale on eBay. <laughs> so I, bought it. I, I guess he didn't like Buddy that much. Yeah. I guess not. I felt bad. I told Buddy I posted on social media. He's like, huh. <laughs> that's so funny. I yeah, I think I, I got the first few issues of this book because that's the era of Ed McGinnis that I like the most because it's kind of he's he like really blocky. I can't remember who's inking him on that book, but it's like he's got really clean, like thick lines and it's just a really interesting style he got more like fluid and kind of softer as he got older but and joe kelly i still think is one of the most underrated x-men writers that run he did like right around this time that run he did on on x-men was great you are a graphic designer the way you talk about inking and and like i work in a graphic design department and i work with comic creators and stuff like that and i'm just like that's how they talk yeah like to me the stuff that he does now i think it's good it's just not as like interesting and that's what i really loved about it and like i'll say this about the first deadpool mini that was like one of joe Majerera's first books and like that's my favorite era of his art too because it's like it's the most not manga ish but like he's got some really interesting stuff he's doing with with shapes that he kind of morphs as he gets older and i I don't like it as much so it's really interesting to me because i think deadpool books are either like really good or frankly just absolute shovelware that no one should ever (laughs) even bother to write or draw or read (laughs) but like i'm not like a huge deadpool fan but like i do think that like he's the kind of character that if you have something really special you can do with him like you like it really rises to to meet that so basically if you're actually funny that you can put that into yeah absolutely yeah yeah (laughs) exactly yeah all right well now i think it's time we get into our table of contents so guys issue 64 of wizard with a november 1996 cover date featured two different covers now the first was an angela cover by dawn artist joseph michael linsner so this is interesting that he is not associated with mcfarland and anything and they're just like hey draw angela for us it's kind of fun she's like threatening the reader you know just kind of this full body shot she's got her lancer sword pointing at you but it's interesting because in the big book of wizard covers it shows that the original concept was just a close-up of her face and then he took another pass at it and it's just slightly zoomed out so it's like in her shoulders and then finally what they went with was the full body shot so it was just fun to see the evolution uh, of the concept but then the other cover is a mike waringo spider-man cover where you know the webhead is dodging pumpkin bombs you just see them he's attached to a wall they're kind of exploding you know about to explode but what's interesting is the original art for for that the sketch that they show 
had the hobgoblin fully visible, like behind him, like chasing Spider-Man. And then they just decided to imply that the hobgoblin was there. The reason being, there was this big initiative happening. We haven't really reported on it because I don't think it came to much, but it was just like they were having a big deal of, oh, we're going to reveal who the real hobgoblin was. Remember when we said it was Ned Leeds or whatever? It's not. It's somebody else. And we're getting the original writer back to tell you all about it. In addition to Peter Parker becoming Spider-Man again. I always was curious about the covers. Like, first of all, like who would commission the artist? So we got Spider-Man on the cover. We got Angela on the cover. So is it Wizard deciding we want these two characters because we're doing write-ups on them? And then if so, that seems the most likely, right? Who's paying them to make this art? Like, is Wizard paying Joe Linsner or is Todd McFarlane Productions paying? Like, I was curious. Well, about yeah, the, the covers, I'm almost certain, are always just Wizard trying to follow the hottest trend of the moment. Because, sure. like, when we posted originally, like, in the early days about, like, hey, here is an Eric Larson cover that he submitted to Wizard. He's like, I submitted nothing. They commissioned <laughs> me. You understand? And we're like, oh, okay. Yes, our, our, our apologies. So, because they would switch out at the last minute. They'd be like, oh, this character during our production production run is no really? longer as popular as Angela now. So let's put Angela instead. You know, it's like that kind of thing. But now this I- issue was packed with some fun goodies. There was a glow in the dark Ash trading card, which Garib yes. Seamus is very excited about. I love Ash. I oh. think Ash is one of the great abandoned characters and concepts of the 90s. I love Ash. I, I mean, Joe Casada is independent now, so we'll see. Maybe Ash we'll is going to come back. We asked Jimmy Palmiotti about it. He was coy. Of course. <laughs> the Universal monsters trading card series was coming out so there was one of those as a promo there was an exclusive x-files comic book order form and some stickers for a comic that must have been very independent because i do not recognize it at all but it just says n-o-u on it and then both stickers say no flesh shall be spared and i'm like i have no idea what this is about so if somebody out there knows n-o-u comics you tell us all about it I don't think it, no, I don't think that was a comic. No? I think that was a band. Interesting. In the previous issue, they had a Danzig sticker, so it's very possible. Or it's just a, a Danzig-like band that is trying to get the dark yeah. you know, imagery going. So Because it's pretty terrible art, actually. So it right. makes me think it was a pretty low-rent production. But of course, there was also a mail-away coupon for a half issue. And this time around, it was the darkness half. Yes. Uh, but let's get back to our cover model there, because she is the first cover story. Earth Angel is a profile on the popularity of... Of the Angela character in Spawn Comics, basically explaining why, aside from just a miniseries of her own and a team up with Glory from Extreme Studios, McFarland doesn't feel the need to spin her off into an ongoing title. Because Todd explains, quote, you risk losing the character's overall impact. When we were younger, it became an event when Doctor Doom came back. But in the meantime, if Doctor Doom had his own monthly book in between his visits to the Fantastic Four, would it be a big deal? I want to save some elements for Spawn on some level. Angela's back and she's in spawn cool probably the next time you see her it'll be all of a sudden it'll have a big splashy ad spawn number 60 the return of angela and basically the rest of the article is just a rundown of all her appearances like what her history is up to this point a little mention of oh i'd love to have neil write another series with her blah 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 neil gaiman that is who co-created the character but in court was proven to have created the character and got all the rights to her i believe he gifted her to marvel because 
because Marvel had recently acquired Miracle Man. So and she first appeared at Marvel on the last page of Age of Ultron. Wow. Yeah, and it was like, I remember reading that and be like, wait, what? This is so weird. But I have to ask, are you guys fans of Angela? And do you feel like she has remained a special event? I have to tell you, I think they basically have dropped the ball completely. They, have, they just don't know what to do with this character. I think they wrote her in as like Thor's long lost sister, but like, I don't think they've done anything with her. I, I mean, I haven't seen this character in... 15 years, maybe more. Yeah. Like, never was on my radar as a character that I cared about. And even remembering now that, that she's a, a, now a Marvel character, couldn't, I mean, couldn't in, tell in a way, doesn't it feel like Neil Gaiman was just trying to stick one more knife into oh, yeah. Todd McFarlane? He's like, I'm giving it to your most hated company yeah. you ever worked for. <laughs> and I will tell you, I just reread the Angela miniseries, like, literally, like, two weeks ago. And... The only Neil Gaiman stuff I've ever read is like the super serious Sandman and like some of his novels and stuff like that. So I was like, oh, this is going to be amazing. And I read it and I was like, this isn't very good. This is kind of like work for hire. Like, oh, I'm on like, the opposite track, though, Andrew, because really? we reviewed it on one of our mini episodes a couple months back. Okay. And we did? I, well, you weren't there. I, I reviewed it with Chris Bailey, a.k.a. Okay. Charleston it's underscore like, hero. I didn't review it for sure. No, yeah, you did not. But I really liked it because it was so lighthearted and just sure, like yeah. just like wild stuff. It was it had humor. I just never the dry humor that he incorporates in any of his other work never right. works for me. You know, never gets me excited. So I actually like. I was like, this might be my favorite Neil Gaiman. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I, I guess I I didn't think it was like garbage. I was just like, this is so weird because I was expecting this highbrow. Here's Neil Gaiman's thoughts on like heaven and like the here's a trial in heaven. And I'm reading it and I'm like, what the hell is going on in here? This is so strange. Well, Neil Gaiman and Alan Moore, they've kind of said in interviews that when they did image stuff, that was their chance to just let free and be kind of stupid. Yeah, like, yeah. They didn't have to, you know, wow everybody and be the next great thing. So sure, that makes sense. But I'm curious about this. Speaking of stupid stories, um, <laughs> our second cover story, Spider Sense, is a report on Marvel Comics plans for the Spider-Man books in the wake of Ben Riley's demise and the return of Peter Parker's The Real Spider-Man. So editor Ralph Baccio admits it should have been a six-month storyline, but there was such an unanticipated backlash from the readers that changes had to start midstream to bring Peter back as Spider-Man. We know where we went astray a little, and we're coming back to make Spider-Man what he should be. Then what follows is basically just like an explanation about who the creative teams are and the new direction of each book. So you asked me like earlier, like what, what did I really love about wizard? Honestly, it's stuff like that where like you're getting insight from these guys. Like sometimes like right in the thick of like making these decisions and like these days, because people have had a lot more media training, they're a lot more cagey about that stuff. Like I really appreciated the candidness that wizard would get out of their creators. Sometimes that I don't think we get a lot of, or if we do, it's kind of like forced candidness. But back then, like, Wizard was really good at, like, getting your, your guys to, like, talk about stuff that, like, they might not have talked about otherwise. They definitely came at it like, hey, we're your buddies. Let's just yeah. help you out. Let's be relaxed. So now they have changed the adjectiveless Spider-Man that Todd McFarlane launched. It's now being called 
Peter Parker Spider-Man, just to make it more clear. Don't worry, guys. It's Peter Parker. John Romita Jr. is on art. Howard Mackey is writing the stories. And it says, quote, it will feature a lot of organized crime material that John loves to draw and Howard loves to write. So it's like Kingpin and Hammerhead and all those guys, you know. So if that's your cup of tea, I definitely would have stayed away because of the John Romita Jr. art. But a lot of people online keep saying, oh, John Romita Jr. Spider-Man's the best. I'm like, that is good for you. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I did not like John Romita Jr. at all until about 15 years ago. And then something happened to me and I can't tell you what. And now I look at him like, this is the best. Why isn't he drawing every comic? Like, I don't know what it is. I disagree. (laughs) <laughs> no, I know. And, and like, I don't know what it was. Like, I remember, like, remember saying I really liked the like 90s X-Men. Like, there was a couple issues when they came out. And I was like, this is terrible. And like, I was looking back through the cable miniseries that he drew. And I was like, this is so weird. And like, it's got this crazy energy to it. And it's so much better, like laid out and like paced than so many other comics. And like, I don't know, man. Like something in me, like now I love JRJR. I don't know what it is. There we go. Hey, maybe he's just more a mature palette. He did a a Batman Two-Face thing a couple of years ago. Oh, yeah. And it was like maybe like two or three issues with that. And the story was interesting. The art was so distractingly bad that it took me like a month and a half to read through the all three issues. <laughs> I'm yeah. like, I just couldn't get this. Just, I had to keep putting it down and give me headaches. I'm like, I can't look at this. It's just driving me crazy. I mean, I've met him and I, he's a great guy and I, I don't knock his talent at all. I, it's just not my cup of tea. Like, I think that happens as artists get older though. Like I would say the same thing about Jim Lee and I used to be a huge Jim Lee fan and now I look at any of the Batman stuff I've drawn and so I'm like, oh, you just are phoning this in. Like you put in a lot of time in it. I'm not saying you didn't spend time on it but like it's not inspired and like i think that happens to a lot of artists but like if you look back at the stuff like john Romita jr is doing in the 90s like there's so much energy to it that maybe he's lost that now but like you could tell like he was just living for it back then what about this next book here michael spectacular spider-man with art by luke ross and written by jm demetis will be looking at some of the weird and mystical elements of Spider-Man's world. Characters like the Chameleon and Jack-O-Lantern will be featured in stories that the writer describes as demented. (laughs) (laughs) I love the word demented. You were saying it a lot last episode, FYI. I'm sure I was. I'm sure. Because I've been watching a lot of Seinfeld, like on Netflix. Was I oh, love yeah. Seinfeld. And there's, a, there's an episode where George goes to Jerry. He goes, do you ever get down on your knees and thank God that you have access to my dementia? Yeah. I use that line all the time. I love the word demented. Anyway, I digress. I think, Andrew, you're next. Oh, second to last is the amazing Spider-Man, the classic Spider-Man, with art by Steve Scrose, one of my favorites, and written by Tom DeFalco who says it should be a a book that someone can just pick up without ever having read a Spider-Man book before. He promises the return of the original Doc Ock and other classic characters. So that's your classic Spider-Man right there. What's funny about that is, so I don't know if you guys know this yet, but Dan Slott is now back on Spider-Man. Oh, really? Okay. After doing Amazing Spider-Man for give or take 20 years or so, he left Spider-Man to do Fantastic Four when they came back. And he said, I'll never work on Amazing Spider-Man again, period. And now he's back on Spider-Man. And he says, see, I didn't say I was going to be back on Spider-Man. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) 
So, yeah. Wow. Well, and our last book here is Sensational Spider-Man with art by our cover artist for this issue, Mike Waringo, and written by Todd DeZago. And it is described as, quote, lighter stories. As DeZago explains, quote, Mike and I are so excited that we don't have to do brooding, deep, emotional stories and can just have fun. Spider-Man Unlimited, by the way, is also mentioned briefly as a book that most readers regard as something that's just, quote, thrown together. But Machio says the stories found within will, quote, play an important role in who Spider-Man is. So they're basically saying, buy all the books, kids. Come on. (laughs) But in your mind, then, what makes a good Spider-Man story? Like when you pick up an issue, what is it you want out of that? I mean, I think there's a there are a few like Spider-Man stories that have like a few classic modes. You know, I think one is is the just kind of freewheeling fun story, Spidey swinging through New York, like that kind of thing. I think that's like you know when when people think of Spider-Man, they think of that, or they think of the stories that really put Peter through the ringer and test him to the max. I'll be honest, I haven't really read much Spider-Man ever. Uh, the only story I could tell you I've read beginning to end was that Rain story that is basically like yeah. Spider-Man Dark Knight. Which That's honestly, cool. I might be like one of the only people who likes that story. I think that story is awesome. Oh, I like it too. Yeah, yeah I, I have, think it's I super cool. It. But like, yeah, I haven't really read much. But like that story is very much in that second model. Like, not it's not freewheeling mm-hmm. at all. A lot of people like especially like older fans they love like the soap opera they love like the the expansive you know supporting cast the world of peter parker i don't need any of that what i want is i love when peter is dropped into like a situation like he's on assignment you know and he has to go out of the country or something takes him he meets up with somebody for the first time and they need help and he's gonna figure it out but specifically the spider-man the chinese web there you go If it's a TV movie or a comic, I'll take it. But what what they always seem to leave out is that Peter Parker is a scientific genius. Yeah. He created his web shooters. He created the web fluid. So whenever he gets to actually use that, I get so excited. Like in Civil War, when he and Tony become great friends and Tony's his mentor, like that made so much sense to me. And I just, I love when Peter, the scientist gets to also mix that in, create a new type of web fluid, or he creates his yeah. arm that he has to put on, you know, for one issue and then it gets destroyed. But I just, I love when he's creative that way and it's so rare. That just kind of makes me think, you know what would be a really interesting take on Spider-Man is that they did, you know how like Breaking Bad, like they would get into situations, I don't know if you've seen Breaking Bad, but they always get Mm -hmm. into these crazy situations and they'd have to like basically science their way out of them. And like, (laughs) it'd be kind of interesting to see like Spider-Man like in sort of that mode. It's not necessarily like crazy super villains necessarily, but like, it's still like, you know, whatever. And he's got to kind of MacGyver his way out of a situation. He can't Spider-Man his way out, you know? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I do like that element a lot too. I also, Spider-Man, I'm, I'm over whenever they do Spider-Man high school, just like I'm over, Mm -hmm. like, let's see Batman's origin again. Like I, I I like to see, you know, 30 something year old Spider-Man who's trying to balance, you know, adulthood and all that stuff. There's a a couple years ago, there was a Renew Your Vows where he's married oh, yeah. to Mary Jane and they've got Mayday Parker as their daughter. And he's like, as a dad, teaching his daughter how to be a spider hero well, character. And he lost a leg. Like there were so many cool elements yeah. to Peter in the M2 universe. I loved it. Yeah, that's all stuff right. I really like. 
Now, you mentioned uh, The Dark Knight Returns there with the Spider-Man Reign story, Andrew. And our next article here, Shadows of the Night, is an interview with Frank Miller looking back at the impact of The Dark Knight Returns in the decades since it was first released. So there are some amazing behind-the-scenes details here that probably weren't known to very many fans of the time. Like, for example, they say, quote, John Byrne convinced him to include Robin and to make her a girl by drawing a sketch while the two were flying to a convention. John Byrne created Carrie Kelly Robin. Yeah, there you go. That's awesome. Also, DC mandated that Miller had to use the yellow oval on the costume insignia initially, but by issue two, Miller had him fight the mutant leader who ripped across it, and so it necessitated a new version of the outfit being created that did not include the yellow oval, you know, so he stuck that past them, he said. But then also, I love that that made him more creative, because then he had to write in the reason as to why the oval would exist at all as a target to draw fire to a bulletproof chest armor, you know, so he doesn't have to worry about it. Like, just all that stuff is fantastic. I always loved yeah. when he explained it that way. And you know what they explained that, like, chest plate was underneath it? Oh, where? Later, I think it was Kevin Smith or somebody who retconned it where he actually found the gun that killed his parents, melted it down, and made it a chest plate to over his heart to protect him wow that's pretty awesome wow Mm -hmm. just the symbolism of all that yeah now also what's interesting just on the production side miller is the one who pushed for the square bound 48 page format for each issue which had never been done before and led to a bunch of production problems and delays in the issues hitting the market at the time but miller laments quote i just wish i hadn't gotten everyone doing so damn many heroes with gritted teeth (laughs) basically every image book right (laughs) But it's it's just so interesting because none of us were buying the individual issues of Dark Knight Returns. So I have to ask you guys, because we weren't there when this happened, do you think we as basically 90s comic book fans can appreciate the story as much as the fans from that era who saw it happen in real time? Here's the thing that's really interesting to me is, I, you know, we can only experience it in hindsight, right? So I wonder at the time, like readers didn't know that this was basically going to be Batman forever going forward. Like this is how Batman was always going to be now. Like at the time it was like, this is just the Batman that we're getting out of this one guy. And yeah, he's a famous comic creator, I guess, but like it's 1985, like that's not really even a thing, you know, it's really weird to, to think of back on it and be like, you know, they might've just been like, yeah, there's two other Batman comics. This is just one of three Batman comics this month. I don't know that like they necessarily felt the weight of it until after it was done and we could go, oh yeah, like now everything is this Batman. Everything is like the the dark Batman and the, the heavy like Gotham City vibes and stuff. Like, you know, Denny O'Neill's not cranking out books that look like this, you know? Yeah, because we grew up in the era post-Dark Knight, that's right. what Batman already was, right? right? So like you said, Denny O'Neill and- Neil Tim, Adams. Yeah, Neil Adams in the 70s, they were bringing him back that direction. We just know him as darker and darker until it gets to nightfall you know but like for those people they're like wow this is a this kind of a big change i guarantee you if it bombed they would have been like okay well we're just never going to talk about that again and it's still we'll just call it an elseworlds yeah yeah like that was a story that that happened and nothing no big deal it's blue and gray batman for forever super friends batman for forever you know (laughs) 
I, I just wonder, like, because it is very revered, similarly to Watchmen, mm-hmm. was, was Watchmen as big of a deal then as it is today? And, and I want to say in that case, it probably was because you ne- you never saw something like Watchmen before ever. And I think in the same vein, you never saw anything like The Dark Knight Returns before because it was just so different for readers of that time that I could see them being captivated by I got to pick this up every month when it's coming out, but I don't know if they could have envisioned the weight that those stories would carry 40 years later now, you know? Well, and I think the main thing as we close out on this is just that, you know, Watchmen was like all original characters, but based on characters, you know, that they couldn't actually use. And so like, it doesn't make the same impact as, whoa, Batman. Everybody knows Batman and look what he's doing now. He's got a rifle in his hand. He's destroying people. He's driving a tank. Like it just changed the status quo. Whereas Watchmen is just fantastic storytelling, but it's an all new universe that you had to jump into. But moving on here from bats to cats, Catwalk is an interview with Martin Wagner, creator of indie book Hepcat. Man, they were pushing Hepcats like the last six months. They used to push Hepcats. Yeah, they pushed Hepcats and they pushed Strangers in Paradise. They really liked those indie books. Yeah. Because people always say, oh, they just loved Image and Marvel. That's all they cared about. It's like, no, they were pushing indie stuff. We're not going to get into this a whole lot, but basically, for those who don't know Hepcats, it was like a 20-something soap opera with humanoid animal people. And there's nothing fantastic in this article, really, except that he's saying, oh, well, it took me 12 years to publish like seven issues, but I'm back on track and I'm going to have a monthly schedule, all this stuff. But he does explain that he's pulling from life experience. Like it's basically biographical in a lot of ways, specifically his whirlwind two-year marriage to a topless dancer from New Orleans who disappeared for six weeks without a trace during their marriage and inspired a storyline that he just wrote into the book and all sorts of other issues that she had. And he's just like, yep, I'll just put that in my book. (laughs) So it's wild stuff here. But getting into... uh, uh, we are catching up, I guess you might say, with someone we just had on the Wizard Files. The Ron Mars Q&A has some fascinating tidbits that we didn't get into during our interview with the veteran comics writer, like the fact that the night he got the call to write Green Lantern, he was literally wearing a Green Lantern t-shirt. He just had randomly grabbed it and put it on that night. There must have been something in the air, some psychic waves floating his way, you know? But most exciting to me is that Mars was at the Spider-Man Mary Jane live costumed wedding event at Met Stadium in the 80s as a sports reporter. This is before he even got- It's not called Met Stadium. It's (laughs) Shea Stadium. Get it right, pal. There's nothing better than Shea Stadium. West Coast elitist. Well, I should know better. R.I.P. Shea Stadium. R.I.P. But the reason that it was a big deal is to me is we had Jerry Colpitz on the Wizard Files, who was the Spider-Man who was in costume for that event and did all the publicity. And so it's just so funny. Like, had we known. But the most important thing to me, I think, is the article features some alternate Green Lantern costume designs from the series artist that Mars was working with, Daryl Banks. Do you guys have a favorite look of those designs that you wish would have been used because there's some really kind of wacky and then oh, yeah. like streamlined uh, ideas here. But yeah, Andrew, as a designer, which one speaks to you? Most? I mean, they're, they're all really loud. Uh, some of them, <laughs> some of them are more taller. Like I would say like, I can't imagine drawing these like page after page after page for a mm-hmm. lot of them. 
Also, I can't quite tell. Like, are these supposed to be Hal Jordan or are these Kyle Rayner? Because they look like it's Hal. mostly Hal. They said it was just like an idea in general for Green Lantern costumes because they asked originally, "Can we just put Kyle in a Hal Jordan costume?" And they said, "No, we want everything fresh from the beginning." I mean, I I think the Arthurian Green Knight is pretty close to what Parallax ended up looking like, or Kingdom um, Come almost. It's almost yeah, like a yeah. less bulky Kingdom Come Green Lantern. Yeah. yeah. Well, the Kingdom Come this what i didn't realize until very late on the kingdom come green lantern is not hal jordan it's alan scott isn't it it's alan scott yeah 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 Yeah, i like of all of them i like that one the best my favorite kyle rayner costume is kind of the one that i think he might still be wearing it it's like the ion one no the ion's okay it's sort of like a modernized version of his original costume like meant to fit with like oh yeah yeah yeah. his current costume is his best yeah yeah i don't like the jim the second one the jim lee one that he that came out like around 2003 ish I don't like that one. I like the first one, it, but it's like it's only it depends on who's drawing it. I think that that really is is how how well or how terrible it looks. It really depends on who's drawing it. Yeah, I mean, I, I gotta say for me though, the cosmic defender look that they call it is hilarious. It is so oh, yeah. 90s. He's got rogue's hair from the 80s when Mark Silvestri was drawing her, and then he's like flexing and he's got like some black eye makeup on that you know, instead of like the mask, it kind of looks like Lobo. Like yeah, it kind of does. This guy would have to team up with the redesigned Extreme Fate. Remember with Dr. Fate? Yeah. There's the new yes. guy who became Fate. And they, they would have had some great adventures. Yeah, it definitely, yeah, it looks like Extreme GL. Justice League Extreme. This is the <laughs> Lantern version. Yeah. Well, next up here, the Code War is a return to the topic of the Comics Code Authority and censorship in the comic book industry. Now, I went into this because they've covered it in the past. I'm like, what more could they possibly say? But they always surprise me because one thing I didn't realize is that the head of Archie Comics is the one who came up with the concept of the Comics Code Authority in the 50s in the midst of all the witch hunt against comics saying, you know, we'll do this. We'll, you know, police ourselves. Right. Um, But what the article's premise is, it's basically asking if the code is still relevant. But as one member of the code board explains, quote, many comics fans forget that there are two distinct comics markets in America, newsstand sales and direct market. Many distributors and major retailers won't accept comics for newsstand sales without the code seal. So this is almost not true anymore, except Walmart, right? Like where else are you going to get comics these days except at a comic book store? But it's it's one of those things that's like, yeah, if, if from a business perspective, you kind of need it to just tell them these are going to be okay. <laughs> you can sell these, not get sued. Uh, But one bizarre element of the approval process that I knew nothing about is they say that the books are sent from one company like DC sends their books over to Archie Comics. And then the Archie Comics editors are going to review it and give their opinion on if anything needs to be changed and vice versa. Like uh, Kurt Busiek actually comments on it where he's just like, why would they do this? You know, (laughs) he's just like, it seems wrong that other editors from other companies would see the books of, you know, their competitors. But then Mark Wade also states that Marvel's restrictions are far more limiting than the codes are. No curse words, including hell or damn are allowed at Marvel. So it's kind of like the self-policing that some of the publishers did anyway kind of makes them irrelevant. Like you don't need the code. They're already worried about it. Getting back to the world of Ron Mars, 
the censoring of sexuality and violence is said to be inconsistent. A lot of the creators are critical, but specifically Ron Mars states about the infamous scene of Kyle Rayner's girlfriend, Alex, being found dead in a fridge that Daryl Banks had to redraw the panel to where you only see her foot sticking out of a slightly open fridge door, which Mars explains, quote, I can't believe how many readers have asked if she had been dismembered by the code rejecting it as it did. It put a far more grisly scene into readers' minds than what we intended to show yeah. kind of a Hitchcock effect there. I was yeah. going to say it's a, it's a Dahmer effect. We've been watching a lot of the uh, Dahmer show. On Netflix. Oh <laughs> <laughs> I have a joke about Dahmer in my stand-up album. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Now, last thing here, it's mentioned that Big Entertainment, they were the ones who did techno comics and stuff, created its own rating system, which we discussed on a previous episode. But John Byrne states, quote, I would love to see a rating system like that for all comics. It would say to everyone that comics aren't just for children, are intended for various audiences looking for different types of material. Now, what's funny about that statement is not that it's coming from John Byrne necessarily, but that Byrne's greatest rival at this time, Todd McFarlane, who they're talking trash about each other, you know, in various letters columns and things. He said exactly the same thing in his ego column in Wizard a couple of months before all of this. So there's just like, there's a common ground they could have met on. They could have patched things up over the code and having a rating system. (laughs) And then Kurt Busiek sums it all up by saying that, quote, I think the code is a dinosaur that has served its purpose. And then Dan Juergens kind of echoes that by saying, society in general seemingly has advanced so far beyond the code that it doesn't play a part anymore. And Warren Ellis leaves us with something to consider. Quote, some of the world's greatest children's stories would not pass the comics code. Neither would much of the Bible. (laughs) So I ask you guys at this time, or maybe even now, what was your indicator of the content of a comic when you picked it up? You're like, oh, I probably shouldn't read this or mom wouldn't let me read this or whatever it would be. Like, how did you determine what was appropriate for you? I mean, I think for me, I I was always pretty savvy with like how things are marketed to me. So like I would always look at the marketing materials and like I remember seeing like an ad for like Zorro and they had Lady Rawhide on it. Lady Rawhide oh, yeah. was like, a mm-hmm. good bad girl, but she was still back. <laughs> I was like, no, I'm not like, listen, I'm a red blooded heterosexual male. Like I'm interested in women, but I felt like I was getting played. You know what I mean? Like. <laughs> I was yeah. like, yeah, I know what you're trying to do. And like, so for me, like that, anytime I would see marketing materials where it was playing up like the bad girl stuff, I didn't even think it was inappropriate. I was just like, this is bad. This is just, this is just stupid. Like, I don't need to see this, you know? And so like, for me, that was a big indicator was just like, how are they talking to you from a marketing standpoint? I, on the other hand, am a sucker for a cover. So <laughs> if the cover grabs me, I'm probably going to pick it up, even if it's Total hot garbage. Yeah, that, because, that's happened many times. I was gonna say, there's so little reading. You actually have time to do now. You just got a pile, so you're just—it's oh, all dude, covers. You don't even know. Oh my god, <laughs> I have a box. It's just covers, and I'm like, okay, cool. It's cool cover. I just spent five <laughs> bucks on it. Oh, good. Just set money on fire. But I mean, back then, if I was buying something that was a little bit risque, my mother had no idea what I was buying at a comic book store. She's like, oh, you're reading your books over there. You got good <laughs> things. Good. Why don't you go find a girl? Okay, mom. Thanks. <laughs> These are my friends here. <laughs> yeah. I specifically remember like being like, hey, maybe I can talk my mom into paying for profit because he's technically a Christian hero. <laughs> and I can be like, see, mom, it's like 
there's Bible passages in yeah. this book. Like, you know, it's probably good reading material. It's the most violent book that Rob is putting out and like women with the shortest short skirts and stuff. Mm. It's just like, yeah. Right. I mean, for me, it was an easy decision just because at my comic book store, they had a tiered shelf. So the higher it went, the more adult the content. So I knew, oh. okay, if it's not at eye level, I don't buy it. <laughs> you, you, know, you know what's funny? There's, there's a comic shop a pretty famous one near me. I'm not going to name any names, but it's got like, you know how when you go to a magazine shop back in the day, you'd have like people magazine on the bottom, but as you get further up and you had like the adult magazines, the plastic blocker that was just higher yeah. up, you could just read the top of the text. <laughs> There's a comic shop that has that. So if it's like adult comics, you can just read like the title and it's it just kind of like lopped off top of a head. You're like, yeah. okay, that's going to be, <laughs> what does that cover have? Yeah. Well, now, as we go out here and close this segment down, uh, Andrew, you just mentioned Rob had profit. Oh, yeah. Uh, but we have a Rob Liefeld follow up here. Life After Image is an interview with Rob Liefeld by editor of Wizard Brian Cunningham, published in the aftermath of Rob's ousting from the company he co-founded. Now, Brian explains in the intro that he got a call from Rob at 7 a.m. a week prior, revealing Liefeld's plan to resign from Image. And now, during a visit to New York for a signing at Forbidden Planet, was that the store, Michael? Rob was ready to tell his side of the story. So it, it was not Forbidden Planet, but Forbidden Planet is a fantastic store. I okay. will, it's now here's what Rob starts out with quote. I had let the other image partners know I was resigning 10 days before I put the thing into play. I received a press release 24 hours later that was confusing, stating that they had voted me out. Liefeld also comments on Mark Silvestri blaming his departure from Image on Liefeld, which we've covered in the last few issues. Quote, not that there's been a good relationship or a bad relationship. There's been no relationship. I read all the interviews and was kind of confused at the fact that he was pointing at me. Again, Mark and I have had no conversations beforehand or after <laughs> so mark Silvestri hated him from afar according to rob liefeld now rob also asks directly to brian why do you think i'm controversial to which brian responds well you say some things that cause people to react rob then suggests quote sometimes i probably say things without thinking them through and i think the older i get the more i'll choose my words better nope <laughs> not no, the case not at all. <laughs> Uh, he also says, there have been times in the past where I felt that I'm the authority on something only to find out that I don't know squat. Again, this lesson has not sunk in. <laughs> yeah. So my school just did an interview with uh, uh, Aletha Martinez, who works for Marvel and DC, and she's the lead artist on a character called uh, Nubia in, at DC Comics. It's like oh, the, yeah. Uh, and um, she was literally just saying the other day, she's like, I've been having a lot of issues with Rob Life. <laughs> And, oh wow! And, and like he's still a problem, <laughs> and she, and and she was discovered by Jimmy Palmiotti and Jim Lee and Joe Casada. Like that's who basically found her and brought her to Marvel Comics. So she's very tight crazy. with them. She's like, yeah, like 
right out, she's like, yeah, he's a big problem. It's <laughs> like, oh, boy. Well, and then it's interesting. Brian then states, some say you are difficult to work with. To which Rob exclaims, difficult in what way? I don't know how to answer that. There are people I will always be confused by that I know that we paid better than anybody in the business and they have access to grind with us. Sometimes you just throw your hands up in the air. It's frustrating, which it seems to he equates, well, if I pay you enough money, you put up with my crap, right? (laughs) It's like, I paid you. You don't get to criticize my attitude. And the last thing here, because Brian just, he's just boldly making declarations. You're the guy that everyone loves to hate. And Rob explains that, quote, I ignite a lot of passion in people, and I don't know why. No one's told me why. (laughs) You're not (laughs) listening, Rob. You're not listening. (laughs) Oh, boy. That's another Rob observation right there. There it is. There it is. All right. Well, Michael, you know, Rob, he was uh, not popular in the comics community among fellow creators, but he was pretty popular in Hollywood at this time. So why don't you take us into... Oh, God. Sometimes, Adam, you crack me up, I tell you. (laughs) I tell you. Heroes in motion. All right, newly formed Marvel Films is moving forward with a Blade movie starring Wesley Snipes, which really, if you look at it, it was the shining light of comic book movies in the late 90s in comparison to what else came out before Spider-Man. Like, that movie is still fantastic. It's still great, yeah. Meanwhile... Mike France, who wrote Cliffhanger and Goldeneye, has completed a Fantastic Four script. David Goyer is still working on a Venom script, and probably still to this day. <laughs> Australian director Jeffrey Wright is attached to, to do a Silver Surfer film, while an animated series is set to air on Fox, along with a planned Captain America cartoon series. Of course, only two of those projects ever materialized which, so many plans what's blade and what's the other one what's the second one the silver surfer cartoon i think yeah. right oh yeah. yeah okay it's crazy like blade is such a unique wonderful film and it, i just find it hilarious that the guy that wrote golden eye and cliffhanger both huge box office successes couldn't get the fantastic four script you know going it was to... all chris columbus's fault man yeah. he was the guy he's like i want to make this movie i'm gonna make it I do hate GoldenEye, though. I don't like that but movie. It's great. Oh, I, I hate that movie so much. <laughs> I'm 006. I was like, of course you are. Of course you are. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, man. Speaking okay. of which. Oh, God. Here we go. We're still on this guy. Rob Liefeld may be out of image, but he's still in Hollywood pitching movies based on his comic book creations. Says Liefeld, Hollywood doesn't understand what image is. I've never sold anything on the basis that it was an image property. Bad Rock is the latest acquisition by New Line Cinema, which was originally being pitched as an animated series, but the studio pushed for a live-action film. New Line is also continuing to develop an Evangeline script, while TriStar is gung-ho on a profit movie. Rob boasts, all of these movies I expect to be shooting and or finished shooting by this time next year. Well, profit is supposed to be coming soon because uh, <laughs> yeah, it's still, it's Gyllenhaal is attached to it. 
I mean, oh. I'll say this. I, I don't think they could have made a good profit movie in, in 1996. In 2022, 2023, when it ever shoots, I could see them actually making an interesting profit movie. So, like, a lot of these things, it's like it's just a matter of getting, like, technology and the yeah. audience to catch up to the concept, you know? No, totally. I, I agree. Even still, like, you look at Marvel and you look at the She-Hulk show, they couldn't get every episode of She-Hulk's quality of her CGI to look perfect. The yeah. episode that aired today, the episode eight. Daredevil episode. Yes, is probably the best of all the CGI in the entire series so far, by far. It's like they put all their money to that one episode and everything else was like, oh, well, we'll do the best we can what we got. Anyway, speaking of another character that was huge in television and stuff in this time period, The Tick is headed to the big screen to be produced by Fox Family Films as a theatrical released animated movie. Sadly, no one was able to shout spoon in the theaters. Oh, I would have gone to see a tick Me movie too. in theaters, yeah. man. That show was so fun, though. That live action show, oh man, it was so uh, good. Did you see yeah. the, the reboot funny. from a couple years ago? Amazon's, yeah, it's Amazon so good. One? <laughs> I didn't watch the Amazon Prime one, though. Was it good? I, I mean, I liked it. I don't know if it was good. I liked it. It was a very different take. Yeah, like it wasn't super serious, but it was definitely grittier than I was expecting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I don't know. I want to check it out. I, I I just I love that first one so much that I don't want to like right. spoil it with something else. But adding insults to injury, barbed wire is reported to be as much of a failure on home video as it was in theaters. Oh, oh. come on, barbed wire! Oh. Did you become a cult cast classic? Oh boy! Now I've never read the barbed wire comic, and I remember as as a youth when it came out i remember like this looks stupid because i remember i wasn't into the bad girls but as i've gotten older i'm like yeah but chris warner drew that yeah you should like, go chris back warner i've read great. them all they're great yeah yeah the comics are cool they just yeah cast the wrong actress that's yeah all. yeah I, that's the impression that i'm getting in retrospect I, I could see if they rebooted that today it would probably do pretty well yeah it, it, I feel like, the, you know, there was an era where they were trying to get, like, female comic characters like this and Tank Girl. You ever see the Tank Girl movie with Lori yeah. Petty? That movie I so literally bad. just today, a YouTube video came out with me opening up a pack of Tank Girl trading cards from 1995. No way. Oh, <laughs> yeah. that, movie, that movie kills me because I'm like, I would have loved that to be good. And it's just, oh, I, I couldn't get through it. I couldn't stand yeah, it. Yeah, unfortunately. It's a bummer. Wizard reports Malibu Comics is now unofficially Marvel West Coast and continues to expand on the television and movie front. Glenn Larson, the creator of Battlestar Galactica, Magnum P.I., and Knight Rider, and other TV genre shows, is developing a Nightman as a syndicated series, describing it as a cutting-edge comic book that belongs on television. Funny enough, I was walking back to the train today. There was a truck that drove by me, like a big tractor trailer, and it said, Night Corporation, and I'm like, it's in that truck! (laughs) (laughs) It's like, oh my god, it's Kit. It's in the truck, it's real! Um, What was the, Nightman was like, he was like a jazz musician, like who also was a superhero? Yeah, Yeah, and he could basically hear evil thoughts. That okay. was his superpower. <laughs> I will be honest with you, Malibu missed me entirely. Yeah, I just straight up dodged the, all of those bullets. Yeah, me too. Uh, getting just one sentence is the Malibu comic being adapted to live action, a little film called Men in Black starring Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones. You guys ever wonder what happened to that 
Men in Black movie? <laughs> yeah. I remember. Okay. Do you guys remember there was like a comics by mail? It might have been like called like American Entertainment, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I remember they had, I like there was an ad for Men in Black. And I was like, oh, maybe I should check that out. And I just never did. And now I'm like, oh, man. Like, I, I mean, like, I don't know if it's worth anything or not, but I was like, maybe I could have. You know, paid for a semester of college with that. <laughs> Who knows? Everything yeah. is collectible nowadays. Yeah. yeah, right. Finally, there's a special report on the final episodes of the X-Men, the animated series, specifically citing the new character designs that are more cartoony. Says Wizard, think of the show looking less like Jim Lee's X-Men and more like Joe Matarera's and Wolverine is described as more stocky with bigger feet while <laughs> jubilee, oh, seriously while jubilee has the biggest makeover she's thinner and taller more along the lines of her current appearance in generation x wow. yeah so that final the final six episodes i think it was they, they were just milking it for all they could they have the character designs in there so we'll put that on social media for you all to get a look at see what you I, i'm looking at them i have to say they don't look like Joe Maguire's art at all. No. <laughs> you know whose art they look like is the earlier mentioned Joe Bennett. That's who they look like. Ah. All right. Well, uh, we don't have a Joe, but we do have a Jim in our next segment. So it's time to get into Jim and Todd's Hype Machine. Oh, boy. All right, guys. So as reported last issue, Rob Liefeld's departure from Image, we're back on that train, was resulting in many changes at Image, but specifically to Todd McFarlane's continuity for Spawn. Yes. Todd McFarlane reveals in this issue that Al Simmons' murderer, Chapel, which was a Liefeld creation for Youngblood, would be retconned out of his role as the killer of the man who would be Spawn. Though McFarlane clarifies, quote, I have the rights to use Chapel on TV and in the movie it's not like rob is gone and i have to rewrite everything the retcon does seem though to be involved somehow with the movie development because in the movie as you'll recall there is a white female character with no skull on her face filling the role uh, because mcfarland claims that they needed more female characters in the movie so that's why he switched it up But it seems also that McFarlane has a different idea for the comics continuity, as we were stating, because he explains, quote, this new character Priest will have killed Simmons and Chapel will have given Priest his orders. You notice how he refers to Priest as a male character because that hadn't been decided yet. But a year later, when the Spawn movie comes out in the Curse of Spawn comics, there's a multi-issue arc that is a solo story, basically an origin of the Priest character. She's like down in South America. She has to retrieve this MacGuffin thing. And she's like basically like Black Widow meets Harley Quinn. She's just like insane, but she's like a super assassin with all these special skills. It was actually a really fun story. I enjoyed it. So I I didn't anticipate uh, reading Curse of Spawn, but I saw that. I was like, let me check this out. I was like, okay, this is kind of a fun character. It, It really makes you appreciate the movie character more having read those comics i don't know that that's like one of the most interesting characters in that whole movie believe it or not in my opinion other yeah, than wait a minute. you didn't think john leguizamo's a clown was the most interesting <laughs> character in that movie uh, i i 
every time I saw him on screen, I kind of like looked away. I hated it so much. I it was so it. gross. Weird. Yeah. I hated it so much. Ugh. Here, crispy, bad crispy. Anyway, moving on. Another update on the Jed 13 animated film because they can't get enough. This time, the full cast of the movie is announced. So, as the voice actors, we have Flea for Red Hot Chili Peppers as Grunge, Alicia Witt as Fairchild, E.G. Daly of Rugrats fame as Free Fall, John Delancey Q from Star Trek The Next Generation as John Lynch, Mark Hamill as the villainous Threshold, Lauren Lane as Ivana, and Cloris Leachman as Helga. Uh, now, the funny thing is the mind behind the project, the guy who's putting it all together, Kevin Altieri teases, quote, we have a shower scene with Caitlin and Roxy. It's a character building moment. Uh, of course it is. I'll tell you, I started watching this literally just before we recorded because I was like, I got some time to kill. Uh-huh. It's better than I thought it was going to be. It's also, it's kind of raunchy. Like, I yeah. was kind of surprised that like, I was like, wow, this is a little edgier than I was. Like, there's almost nudity, like, where I can't tell if it's a bad. Yeah, they're covered in steam and yeah, stuff. Well, yeah. there's a couple shots where I'm like, I can't tell if this is just the degradation of the tape uh, ripped <laughs> down and digitally uploaded. Maybe it's just that or like they did put something over. Like, I couldn't tell, but I'm like, man, they got really close to rest. Yeah, I mean, they, they were pushing the PG-13. Yeah. They're like, we know what the boys want. Come on, guys. And it was also very strange for me because like I said I, I, earlier, I've read a lot of Wildstorm and I've always pictured John Lynch as like a like a uh, dirty hairy yeah. type. And like John Delancey plays him as like this erudite, like sophisticated, <laughs> like it's very, I mean, like I didn't mind it. I was like, this is kind of interesting, but it's very different from what I was expecting. Michael, just so you know, we're going to have to watch this movie someday and we're going to review it because you need to, we've talked about it so much. You need to finally see it. It's, it's not. Not as bad as I like. I thought it was going to be absolute trash. It like I'm about a third of the way through it. I'm almost impressed with this. See? But like, I will say this: Flea as Grunge is the weirdest thing I've ever <laughs> heard in a cartoon. It is so strange. Where can I find it? Where it's on I... YouTube. It's just uh, literally type in Gen 13 animated movie. There's a million uploads of it. <laughs> All right, may maybe I'll watch it on the train and I'll just okay. Or, or if if you're feeling really saucy and we have a day that we could do this, we could do like a like a co watching thing on go. Zoom or something. That'd be fun. Yeah. Okay. Oh. Mystery uh, Science Theater. It. There you go. Great. Now, also, as we close out here, a Gen 13 fanzine, it's literally called Gen 13 Zine, is being published by Wildstorm, which will feature fan art, fan questions and interviews with the creators behind the super trendy team of Wildstar teams but it'll be like it, it's much more edgy you know it looks cool it looks thrown together because Sarah Becker the editor on the book is heading up the project I actually have a copy of this in my Gen 13 collection you do? oh yeah yeah, uh -huh. yeah. the cover's really fun it's got Freefall getting a tattoo yep. <laughs> but um, the funny thing I, I teased this before there is a running gag because they basically like print the questions from fan letters on uh, different pages and the constant question is what is Fairchild's bra size <laughs> like that Gender is a such a weird book because it's like I don't know who the market like I don't know who was actually reading it versus who they were trying to get read it because like they're writing as like horny teens and I'm like but like the people who are who are into that aspect are probably like 12 year olds like not 19 yeah, that, and well, that, 20 year olds yeah you know? I was literally 13 when it came yeah. out so for me like I loved it <laughs> Hey there, geeks. Adam jumping in here with a special report. You know, as we were recording this episode, we got so excited talking about the Gen 13 animated film that I totally skipped over the Jim and Todd's hype machine tally. Aww. 
Yes, the most important part of the show. The thing you tune in for every single time you push play. Well, I could not leave you in the lurch because, as you'll recall, on episode 63, we had something of a cliffhanger because Jim and Todd were finally tied. After 63 issues, they were tied up in the tally. Todd had been in the lead leading up to that. So here we go. We have done the tally for issue 64. And in this issue, Jim Lee was mentioned seven times and Todd McFarlane seven times. Yes, I cannot believe it, but we have another holdout here where we are not going to have a victor in this contest because Jim and Todd apparently were so competitive that they were even controlling their mentions in the magazine, could not let one get a win over the other. So as of right now, Jim Lee has a total of 376 mentions. Todd McFarlane has a total of 376 mentions. The tie continues, so tune in for episode 65 and let's find out who comes out on top now back to the episode now it's time for some merch madness So it looks like Toybiz is releasing two assortments with a similar theme. The first is X-Men Armor Wars, which in addition to Beast, Iceman, and Wolverine includes Astral Armor, Professor X, and the first ever Quicksilver figure. Spider-Man Armor Wars features three Spider-Man figures with Snap-On Armor, a Vault Guardsman, and Ultimate Octopus, which is Doc Ock in a helmet and platform boots. <laughs> oh, man. we the, the stuff we covered last issue I thought was terrible, but now they just got, they're just going to throw armor on everybody. It's just like, we made this thing out of plastic. How do we make it more interesting? We'll snap more plastic on top <laughs> of it. And like, yeah, this Astral Armor Professor X, like, first of all, Professor X does do like stuff in the Astral Plane with armor yeah. on. It looks nothing like this. So I don't know where they came up with that. Yeah, he's kind of um, like a glowing translucent red, right? Like yeah. pink or something. And yeah. From what I can tell from this scan, Quicksilver doesn't have any armor on. It was just an excuse to you know, produce him, I think. And they're like, well, if we just put like some boots or a little clip-on thing on his arm, then that counts. Right. <laughs> so strange. So then Series 3 of the Kenner Total Justice line will feature Fractal Armor Batman with Optical Shoulder Cannon uh, System, Superman with Kryptonite Ray Emitter. I don't know why Superman would need to emit Th That is a bad choice. That is not uh, safe. Yeah. <laughs> I've got this gun that shoots poison in my own face. Um, and Hawk, Hawkman with massive grip talons and, of course, the villain Despero. I will tell you, the Total Justice lines, I remember, like, those the first wave of that. I think I, I think it was the Kyle Rayner GL. I think I really liked the sculpt on that one. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is, he had a shoulder cannon also. Yeah. And it makes me wonder, did they literally just recolor it and give it to Batman right. in the second wave? Right. <laughs> but it would make sense that Green Lantern was, because, like, that's his power. Like, he's always building constructs so mm -hmm. that makes sense in the world of trading cards Fleer skybox is releasing a 100 card set of wolverine cards featuring painted art on the front and classic comic book art on the back in more uh, more painted card art news the 1996 marvel masterpiece series will feature nine black and white cards which can be redeemed for an original painted art piece from the set created by julie bell or her husband boris vallejo in the world of bad girls oh you know how much i love the bad girls <laughs> Witchblade is getting her first card. Come on, like you can't, you gotta be kidding me with 
with this. Like, <laughs> Wishblade's been around for like three years max, and she's already got an entire card set just for herself. That's crazy. And Lady Death is getting her third card set. <laughs> Uh, which includes something called the Mystery Black Mask Chromium. That's probably in that Omega version of Evil Ernie, I would guess. Yes. And Mystery Fractal Chromium case cards, as well as 500 randomly inserted cards autographed by writer Brian Polito and artist Stephen Hughes. Stephen Hughes gone too soon. I don't like uh, the background art, but I always thought Stephen Hughes was a really great artist. It was really fun, yeah. And then finally, Marvel has licensed their characters to be printed on snowboards that retail for $299. These totally tubular boards feature Wolverine by Adam Polina, Human Torch by Andy Kubert. I don't think I've ever seen Andy Kubert draw the Human Torch. That's interesting. Green Goblin by John Romita Jr. And Captain America by Ron Garney. Wizard points out that they totally missed the boat by not including a silver surfer board. Yes. <laughs> Come on now. Yeah, you gotta think, people. All right. Well, uh, now that we know about the merch, it's time to find out about some laughs, Michael. So why don't you take us into tonight's Turok Top 10 list. And it is top 10 comic laws we'd pass if we won the presidential election. And I'm going to point this out. My top 10 on this list would say, Adam, have a better scan than this. Oh, my bad. <laughs> Pretty so bad. Wait, this is the presidential. This is Clinton versus Dole. Is that what you hear? I think this in 96. Yeah. Okay. I think so. Number 10. Hal Jordan restricted from restructuring all of space and time or he'll face a $100 fine. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> Number nine, Batman required to smile. Number eight, death penalty for any use of a sideways comic panel spread. That one I can support. (laughs) (laughs) Image would be uh, paying all the fines on that one. Number seven, Jim Shooter allowed to launch no more than one company per year. That's a good one. That's well, the funniest good. thing is, I you, I didn't give it to you guys, but on the other side of the page, it's a Jim Shooter article. Like he's, he's oh. doing a guest editorial. And so it's so hilarious that they literally put that right next to his face. <laughs> Number six, two-year moratorium on launching any new X-Books. Yes, now I agree with that one. Number five, all new artists must learn how to draw first before being called artists. <laughs> Subsequent loss of 80% of all working comic quote artists, (laughs) which that is still true. So that it's still true. Very much so. Oh man. Uh, Number four, anyone dead stays dead. Damn it. (laughs) I concur. Number three, bad girls must change a light bulb at least once per day. Now is that, I know there are jokes, is that about a, how many blondes is it? Like, I think I it's just because they want to see them in a like, in a compromised position. I maybe? guess I don't know. That that's a confusing one. Yeah. Um, number two, public executions for crappy creators who screw with good characters. I'd love some examples of who they think that is. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and the number one top ten comic law we'd pass if we won the presidential election: no showing Batman's Heine in the movies. <laughs> 
Yes. Oh, well, you know, Joel Schumacher, he liked to bat Heine. So. He liked the bat butt and the bat nips. <laughs> Loved him. They, didn't, they had no idea what was coming in that Brian Azzarello series from a couple of years back. So it's funny you say that. So uh, I'm reading the Sean Murphy uh, White Knight series. He was talking about how he chose to do it in DC Black Label because of the fact that you could show nudity and sex or whatever. Yeah. And and he had written a like a several panel issue where harley quinn and joker were having sex and it'll be the first time you'd see harley quinn naked in a comic and after the bat junk in the first black label book dc was like that's it nope no more and they pulled what they were going to do for white knight that's really i i have mixed feelings about that white knight book i think it's amazing i think it's really cool looking but some of the changes he's making like these just seem like arbitrary changes because you just wanted to say you change stuff it's really weird i don't know i i'm i'm all in like it's the book that when it comes out it's the first oh, I'm one super i get excited about it. and yeah. the first one i read like big time it's really really good i really yeah. enjoy it i get some of the changes and i and i like that it's sort of elseworldsy and it's, it's an homage to a lot of other stuff yeah. and there's a joke in the last issue where for those who don't know so like right now the jack napier joker character and batman are kind of combined in a way if you will i don't want to get into too much spoilers but like they're in a bat cave he's got all these rows of batmobiles and he always goes to the 89 batmobile and joker's like why do you always go for this one don't you want the tumbler isn't that better he goes this is the best one (laughs) he just drives through (laughs) it's like it's like it's fantastic i'm like yes he gets it he gets it so anyway, that was our top 10 list. And Andrew, where can they find you? Oh, great question. I mean, the easiest way to find me is just go to my website, which is andrewsahawk.com. I'll spell that for you because it's tricky. It's A-N-D-R-E-W. That's the hard part. And then my last name is C-A-H-A-K. Um, and yeah, you can find all my stuff there. You can find a link to buy my stand-up album. That's on Spotify and stuff too. You don't have to buy it, but there's vinyl. You can buy it on vinyl. And then there's a link to my podcast that we talked about earlier. Life was peachy. Um, the big project that I think fans of this show will really be interested in, um, is something called Darkest Image, which is a tribute to the early days of Image that I put together with a bunch of guys. There's actually two volumes of the second one is shipping like right now. And the second one was like 300 pages long so it's all Whoa. like yeah it's like savage dragon and then there's so much there's so much the max like i it was blown away at how much people are into the max and like ninja turtles and there's some wild storm there's tons of rob characters in there so darkest image number two is shipping right now you can get a digital copy of darkest image number one which is maybe about the same page size those are available the digital copies are at image granddesign.com the print copies of uh, volume two are still available let me make sure i've got the right address here it's marcosis six studios.bigcartel.com but again you can find those links on my website but honestly if you love the, a lot of the stuff we're talking about like the darkest image books are super cool they're all fan stuff so you know it's a wide variety of styles if you really like the gritty like hey i'm just learning how to do this like 
people are attracted to that stuff there that stuff is in there there's guys who should be drawing for marvel and dc that are in this book so it's it's a really fun book so please check that out and the best part about it is all the profits of that are being donated to help creators so volume two 100 of the profits are going to to benefit william mester lobes who was one of the co-creators of the max but he worked on the flash just before mark wade he was the, the, the writer on the flash before mark wade he did wonder woman during the 90s so really important guy who's like he's just getting up there in years and he's had a, a rough couple of years so um all the profits go to help that so if, if you love what we what wizard talks about darkest images for you please check that out yeah that sounds like a lot of fun it's super cool yeah that's that's awesome very cool and as always you want to check out us or get in touch with us you can go on our social medias which is twitter at wizards comics on instagram it's wizards underscore comics you can also email us at wizards comics pod at gmail.com adam what else you got for us well, the other thing I'll just say is make sure that you check out our YouTube channel, Wizards Podcast on YouTube. There's always new stuff going up over there, whether it's a haul video, the latest editions of Wizard Magazine and comics to the archives over here. So just stay tuned over there. If you're not subscribed yet, there's a lot you're missing here because we do not double up. It's not like we're just reposting the podcast. It's literally all new content on YouTube every week or every other week. So either way, uh, we want to thank you again, Andrew, for joining joining us thank you everybody for checking out wizards the podcast guide to comics and until next time keep your books bagged and boarded This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.